they were projecting their psyche into matter. And it's that projection and the fact that the alchemists used nature as a metaphor system. They didn't make a difference between spirit and matter, unlike what started happening with science and uh, certainly with the church and all of the philosophical traditions, which had God or some uh, something in there. And mm-hmm. so the alchemists were looking below the surface and projected. So what Jung points out is that they were finding uh, psychological gold. Welcome to In Search of the New Compassionate Male. My name is Clay Boykin. I support this podcast through my coaching practice. I help people visualize and harmonize, find direction and meaning, or simply get unstuck. Contact me at clayboykin.com for a free consultation. Now, here's the latest episode of In Search of the New Compassionate Male. Hello, world. It's me, Dennis, and welcome to In Search of the New Compassionate Male. I'm Dennis Tardon. I'm co-hosting this episode with the founder of the New Compassionate Male and In Search of Clay Boykin. Hey, Clay. Hi, Dennis. What a great afternoon we have coming back with us i think now for the third time we've been together several times is howard teich my dear friend thank you brilliant brilliant howard what a difference you've made in my in my life howard uh how i look at how i look at the world differently honor and lunar have come into my life how i've actually had a paradigm shift in my perceptions Mm -hmm. of the world through your work and what you're doing what an honor and I understand today that we're you're getting a chance to to help me especially. Clay has had much you've had a much deeper understanding and work in alchemy than I. Well, yeah, but barely scratching the surface. And thanks to Howard, I've got a little bit more appreciation. But yeah, mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah, me too. I only have a little appreciation of the depth of this imagery and this architecture that uh, has been around really maybe from the beginning of carrying the fire Mm -hmm. and certainly through Egypt and particularly in the Middle Ages, which is what Jung made a big, Carl Jung made a big discovery upon that I think the future of his recognition is going to come from his having discovered alchemy and the collective unconscious mind uh, all came uh, from his work uh, later on in his life in discovering alchemy. And was alchemy, I, I just want to kind of set the stage. Yeah. So please, alchemy is, is ancient by name. I mean, is going back into the Egyptian times and, and earlier, is that correct? I mean, they actually use the term alchemy. I, 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 I believe it's a translation yeah. But how and and how it came through the ages when I when when I was growing up in this when I heard the word alchemy, they basically said we're turning lead into gold, and that was it was a, a process to get rich. That was that was yeah. the, the this was the depth of my understanding, right. which is only an inch deep. It's much more complex and much yeah. more interesting than that. So could you give? From me, from from an ignorant perspective, uh, to to uh, how how would you tell me about this so that I could understand it at a, at a deeper level as to exactly what's going on here? Well, I think that uh, metaphor system came about because the alchemists were really, uh, I'd say, the quantum physicists of that time, trying to figure out what spirit and matter were, knowing there was something in matter that they were searching for. Um, and, um, and because uh, they didn't understand what was there, uh, as Jung brilliantly points out, they were projecting their psyche into matter. And it's that projection and the fact that the alchemists used nature as a metaphor system. They didn't make a difference between spirit and matter unlike what started happening with science and uh, certainly with the church and all of the philosophical traditions, which had God or some, uh, something in there 
And mm-hmm. so the alchemists were looking below the surface and projected. So what Jung points out is that they were finding uh, psychological gold, but because they didn't have the ego development that we now have, they didn't realize that. And so they th- actually thought it was matter and it was the pre-chemistry um, that it's pretty much when alchemy died as a as a as a metaphor system uh, in about the sixteen hundreds. Although Newton was an alchemist and deeply, as a lot of his journals mm. have been translated, but essentially what Jung pointed out is that the alchemists were unconscious of their projections in the matter, and so because they didn't have the modern ego, uh, you get to take a look at the unconscious, the collective unconscious, and their imagery. Mm. So how did you become interested in alchemy? Well, how did, the, how did that, that yeah. fire in you? Um, in my complicated years, of when I became a psychologist and uh, got attracted to dreams, uh, and you know, I thought the, the only person that I really understood was Jung, and I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I began to read Jung, was in Jungian analysis with some of the world's most interesting um, Jungians in the Bay Area when I was living there. And I kept seeing that Jung at some point began to talk about alchemy. And I knew there was something hidden there. And... Um, and so I began to do what I could to understand, uh, particularly his work. I mostly stayed with his work um, and began to read the three or four volumes that he produced towards the end of his life. And I knew there was something there, and it took me years and years uh, to get the thing that you mentioned, which is the lunar masculine that came because one, the alchemists were mostly men, and so most of it was the male psyche, as it turned out. And um, uh, in Jung's last volume, his last great work called Mysterium Conjunctionis, The Mystery of Separation and Synthesis in Psychic Alchemy, um, there were some pictures that were, I thought, weird. Uh, They were, um, in his other book on alchemy that was actually from the quantum physicist Wolfgang Pauli's dreams, it was just loaded with all the classic alchemical imagery. But in that book, there were only a few, and there was a sequence that had uh, these two men in one body with two heads, and uh, there were three or four of them uh, that were there. And um, I couldn't figure out the weirdness of the pictures, and I couldn't figure out the, um, what they might mean. And uh, because in that particular volume, they were printed in black and white. At one point, after trying to understand them, I realized that the alchemy plates were in color because they saw the colors as transformation, energy transformation. And so I I realized that in that volume, the the pictures had descriptions and colors. So I took some markers, unlike me, and began to color them in. And at that point, I had begun to study deeply what was this unusual part of male mythology, that um, I had read about from Joseph Campbell's work and his original work called Where the Two Came to Their Father, which was from the Navajo sand paintings, a series of sand paintings that he read the story and told his commentary on uh, this twin hero mythology. And I had never heard of this twin hero mythology. I'd been pretty much steeped in the hero with a thousand faces and that part of Campbell's work. And Campbell wrote this major, major commentary five years before he wrote here with a thousand faces. 
and he really didn't return to it, uh, but stayed with the hero myth that we're all familiar with. But there was this weird, these weird pictures in that last volume of Young that had two men. So I'd been studying, trying to understand what it meant, that what was the difference between what I had grown up with and most men understood about maleness and what it meant to be a man was the hero's journey. And I had never heard of the twin heroes, and I found every indigenous culture and pre-Judeo-Christian cultures had twin male heroes in their mythic system, as well as I began to notice in indigenous cultures, they also had dual females. They didn't call them twins for some reasons, but I began, so I was very intrigued. And when I came across these uh, pictures in that last volume of Mysterium Conjunctionis, I realized that one of them was called the hidden to be revealed. And I thought, wow, if there's something hidden from the alchemists that they hid, this must be really significant. And so I began to, as I colored them in, I realized that what the change was, was that they were ended up uh, standing on blue feet. Uh, the two legs were turned blue in the transformation. Mm-hmm. I knew enough about uh, alchemy and color transformation. I knew that that meant something. And then I had been studying all these different myths about the twin heroes, particularly the Mayans, and at that point, the Navajos. And I realized, wow, a uh, child born of the water was a figure in the Navajo myth. And in the Mayan story, when the twin heroes who played on the ball court, uh, which many many of your listeners may have been down to the Yucatan and seen Chichen Itza and some of the Mayan runes, um, uh, the twins were born in every single culture I could find, almost every culture I could find, as the part of the creation story. And it's only in Roman culture that Romulus kills Remus. And what we've lost in Western culture was one of the twins. And so I began to realize that blue, now that was water. And uh, in the Mayan story, that began to really tell me because after the twins were called down to the underworld to meet the lords and lords of the underworld because they're making too much noise and they were bothering them down there, uh, they went down with the arrogance of the archetypes thinking, well, we'll just defeat them. Well, they ended up defeating them in the ball game, but they realized they're mortal and couldn't live and they died. And one was born as the sun and one was born as the moon. And that was the wake up call for me because in Jungian analysis and all the most of Jung's writing and really not even uh, flushed out was actually this ancient male moon god. And he was the twin to the sun god. And so alchemy began to be the piece that changed my life because up to that point, um, and much of the conscious, amazing still, how it's the feminine side of men that is talked about to be the compassionate emotional side rather than the male moon god as that part of masculinity that was separate from the uh, moon goddess of the feminine. And that began to be the orientation point. So for me, alchemy had this extra special transformation and secret uh, for me. So that's, that's how I came across really alchemy and the value personally and emotionally to me and people that I've had a chance to share this with. Uh, it's affected some people right away deeply, like the two of you uh, and others, and others just don't relate to it. They keep uh, attached to the this one hero because you have to let go of the ego identification of what masculinity is to really see the fullness of the organic nature of what it is to be a man that includes both these archetypes. And if I'm if I'm hearing right, uh, the tradition 
I remember Karambu talked about this, you know, the the man has got to develop the the female within him and the female has got to develop the masculine, the male within her. And that seems so plain. And for me, it's problematic because it's gender oriented. And, and that gets to be charged because, you know, me telling Laurie, you need to develop the, you know, right. the male within you. <laughs> She's not going to take that too well. Right. Women don't take it as well as men do. Take yeah. The developing their feminine side, which is still the dominant myth. And, uh, and, and it's that language. Right. The essence of what you're talking about, it gets there, but we've been using the wrong language and it becomes charged, which caused mm-hmm. from my vantage point is, is an under, current of energy mm-hmm. that that drives polarity right on well that that is then you really see that polarity when you see western culture develop around a solar hero myth where one twin kills the other i hadn't come across any other culture where one twin killed the other sometimes they didn't get along sometimes they were enemies oftentimes they were friends uh, but the murder of that part of the masculine, I think, is what is the big shadow, directly of the world right now, and certainly of men. And so what you're saying is that the, 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 the twins, the, the, the men that are twins, the traditionally the, the, the dominant, the, the male is killing off the, quote, female aspect of the man. Well, is that what you're saying? Uh, no. Only in Western culture. In Western culture, right. Yeah. No, no. That That's what we've killed, and that's what I grew up with. And, you know, mm-hmm. we all grew up with that only understanding the single hero story rather than the twin hero story. And what that, an amazing and what what an what an amazing experience that is. Are we the only culture? Are are the we the descendants of this culture, the only major culture that this came from? Would do, do they have this in the in the uh, in the Pan uh, Pacific Island and Asian American cultures uh, like the Chinese or or, or, or well, the, you, you have you have it there. The one I'm most familiar with is the Chinese culture of the yin and the yang. But you have it there until Confucius, about 500 BC, takes and makes the yang female. In Taoism, which preceded it, it was actually light and dark, sun and moon. And so, even, and it is so dominant that most people. Uh, get attached to this uh, contragender side because of the yin and yang in Western culture. And people won't let it go. It, it is really, they've done a great marketing job. I'd love to have that marketing <laughs> company that's done it because pe- people, you know, are really, it's very hard to get rid of because we've been basically brainwashed yeah. with it. And Certainly. so, you know, there's other cultures that have two spirits, but in indigenous cult, as soon as indigenous cultures got dominated by a dominator, sure, most of that's what went away because well, it's too dangerous. Howard, what has that done to us today? What are we? Where are we today in in our culture, and how can we use alchemy? And what what? How are how are you using it to where we can actually uh, have have a an opportunity to access this. Yeah. What what are what are the roots in? Well, I think that that for me the the crossroad right now. Let, let me bring in one other historical thing. Um, Jung had the honor of working with a quantum physicist named Wolfgang Pauli, mm-hmm. who was considered Einstein's you know a real peer of Einstein's. And um, in his volume, um, he used uh, uh, Wolfgang Pauli's dreams to illustrate alchemy. And so as I began to understand this, this twinning and began to scratch, just really trying to scratch the surface, 
I came across the kind of fundamentals of uh, what most people believe is the core of um, quantum physics, which is the concept of complementarity, both and rather than either or. Mm -hmm. And so we are no question in an either or world Mm -hmm. and uh, certainly has exploded in the Balkans uh, again at this uh, whole other level. Mm-hmm. Um, and but so that under, beginning to understand, and as quantum computers come on, and whatever's going to be this metaverse that is uh, going to have a different kind of conscious experience of uh, engagement in it, it's really going to give us a chance to be willing to have the option to surrender the ego and not use binary thinking as a black and white way of looking at the world and nature mm-hmm. because the radicalness of the cost of binary thinking is probably the thing that makes it almost impossible for there to be a transformation of almost everything. So my practice and um, is to try to look at um trying to look at both and rather than either or. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a conscious habit that one has to develop. And I, I think that without going into all of the alchemy about which most people are, it's kind of the core of, of quantum consciousness. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I'm getting all these flyers about quantum this and quantum that. Of workshops here and there and i'm not sure about you know i've been to some of them and it's a buzzword we've we've adopted it and we're and and we're yeah. getting into it and let's yeah. let's go ahead yeah. and yeah but but they're kind of this it's so simple at one level to think of both and rather than either yes. or when you hear black and white thinking Exactly. Well, you know, I think about it. Uh, I think about it in a, in a in a continuum. Instead of it being right. one or zero, it is somewhere along the continuum yeah. between one yeah. and zero. Yeah. And as we as I move along to the to the one, which is at onement or yeah. atonement or being, to, I am somewhere along this continuum right. from absolute darkness to absolute light. And as I move along this continuum, I can move a tiny gradient mm-hmm. toward right. the one. Or if I get into fear or lack or th- that kind of thing, yeah, I move right. a little uh, gradually right. toward the darker part. Right. But, I, but I try to look at it along the continuum. Is that a, is that a, yeah. a way of framing it? Totally. And I, I would, yeah, because we are a continuum of energy. And we're in these cellular forms that are a manifestation of this you know, quantum energy yes. for, uh, from the cosmos. And if I could say to your listeners, uh, I would say that you two are the two people that uh, my first conversation with you where we got into this both and, I've not had that experience very often. Mm. So whatever it is that you two are contributing in these podcasts and in your other work, uh, I would really highly recommend that people keep understanding what both of you are doing because you're carrying it on at a architectural level, not just at an ego level. Mm, thank you. Yeah. you what know, a lovely thing yeah, to hear. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's true. You know, you. what comes to mind, I mean, this, this whole search, you know, this search right. for the compassionate male mm-hmm. is we're picking up knowledge and wisdom for everybody that we talk about. And I said, well, I heard this here, Howard, how does that fit for you? And so it's this snowball effect of knowledge and information. And I know at times I'm holding it all. I don't, I don't, I don't understand it, but I feel like there's something there. There's an energy there and, and it keeps, keeps growing. Yep. And for me to sit here and say, well, I can explain it all. Right. There's no way. But yeah. I can, I can, feel, I don't have the words to express what mm-hmm. I'm feeling with the momentum yeah. that we've got happening here. Yeah. So I appreciate well, you. What you're you have the wisdom of not saying all or nothing. 
Yeah, what makes a difference if you have a chance. You know, just at the most esoteric level, many of the esoteric systems end up with a sun eye and a moon eye. And since they're connected to the left brain and the right brain, and people are more used to talking about the left brain being the linguistic um, tool and the right brain being the emotional tool, it takes complementarity to do both end. And that's really, the, to me, the, the biggest thing that I think I, um, you know, will get make a breakthrough here in people's thinking to get out of the subject-object metaphor system yeah. and to move into reflective consciousness, not projections. You know, one of the things, and I agree I with that, that, one of the things that, that I've been able to verbalize that is this whole notion of the, of the polarity of, you know, absolutes, you know, this or this, and there's, right. they, and anything in between is compromise. Mm-hmm. Well, no, right. this to get from this point to this point, there's infinite points in between, which to me is now looking like infinite possibilities, right? not compromise where nobody gets what they really wanted. No, it's infinite possibilities of what that space in between is for me, at least. Yeah. No, I think that compromise is when the ego is still attached. Mm. It's just going to the other end and hasn't really uh, surrendered Mm. its black and white point of view. It's kind of in the back of the brain. So, Mm -hmm. you know, as somebody is trying to expand but unless you're going to surrender the ego attachment to binary thinking, you're going to be caught in a binary world. And then to see in a new way with fresh eyes, since it's uh, the information that we're making up anyway, and to get out of the projection into the energy flow and be informed by the interior life uh, um, uh, as a reflection rather than an object that's an art that's the to me the modern art of alchemy i just saw a visualization because we're talking about you know this or this and Mm -hmm. and you know this this ego Mm -hmm. keeps this into into a compromise conversation and the release of the ego allows us both to lift up higher and lift our sights higher and aim at something higher than either one and and expand the ego because it's the ego that's a child of the unconscious, but the ego thinks it is the unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> Damn ego. Over-identification. <laughs> because it, it's really, a, you know, you can look at indigenous wisdom built around uh, the twin story. Now, twins, as a metaphor of complementarity, is what, you know, I think people are searching for and getting mm-hmm. those people who don't want to think in binary terms. And there's most, you know, plenty of people are never, certainly in our lifetime, I don't think are going to give up the binary quest. But it's the healthy ego that's built with its remembrance where it came from rather than think it is it. That's what we're talking about. You need yeah. an ego to power these. You need a healthy ego. Hopefully, in complementarity. I love that idea, Howard, because I always thought of that. I always thought of that when when I would misread uh, a lot of this, uh, the, a lot of the text and psychological texts. You know that that we that our goal is to kill the ego. That right. the ego is somehow evil. And, that, and I thought, well, now I, I have this physical body, and I can eat cake and feed it all kinds right, of, right. of empty calories and I will damage mm-hmm. feeding this body. Right. Well, couldn't ego be the same thing? Would there well, not be nutri- nutritive ways of making totally. a healthy ego? Yeah, because the ego is part of the body. It's an emergent phenomena. Yeah. That, you know, some people think the modern ego happened, you know, 2,000, 1,500 years ago. Mm-hmm. as opposed to a collective ego in the transition that was going on at that time, mostly into monotheism. Um, but that came along with it was this thing uh, that I think is now called the ego. 
that uh, if it still remembers that it's built on nature, yeah, not an object, it's kind of the subject-object mindset. Exactly. Do uh, you inside? Do you inside yourself? I mean, because I've only done this. I've only had this a few times, in, in uh, sometimes in meditations, a couple of times, in when I when I was in some kind of a psychedelic uh, experience, to really to understand that my ego and who I really am are two different. I'd say they're complementary. Yes, they are complementary, but they are. But they, but I when it's when I over identify with That's, ego or or uh, the self. Or the self, exactly. Right. Okay. See, this was, if I could uh, bring in the word self, which, and mandala, one of Jung's major things was trying to figure this out. And I would encourage any listener that really is interested in alchemy to read his uh, uh, autobi- his biography at the end, uh, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. Because he goes in a couple of chapters, he really goes into the importance of alchemy. Is it but, understandable to people who do not have the kind of depth and, and the study that you, that, that you have? Would we be yeah, able to, is, is it that's accessible? I, that's where, that is his most accessible writing. Mm. The rest of his writing is almost, you've got to really be willing to do the work. But no, that was written when he was 80, and it's a review of his life, and... You might not be in, people might not be interested in all the different parts of it, uh, but to really see uh, the guys where this came from was an honest struggle trying to understand the unconscious, hmm. and uh, came across after he, he really had this tragedy with Freud, where they couldn't get along because they had a different definition of the unconscious. And Freud thought it was sexually driven, and Jung thought it was something in addition to sex. And they had a big breakthrough and breakout, and it kind of finished by 1913. Mm-hmm. And Jung went, went into retreat, and he spent five years doing an amazing amount of self-discovery. And in that, he was quite the artist and talented and as it turned out, uh, about four or five years into it, he began to draw, and he began to draw mandalas. Mm. And I wanted to bring this in for people that know Clay and Clay's work. Uh, yes, and that's Clay's new <laughs> book, which I have not seen the cover of in that beautiful color blue. Hopefully, yeah. it's uh, seen as the lunar masculine for men and the lunar feminine <laughs> for women. Yeah. And, um, you know, but that was his big breakthrough. And I want to tie this into alchemy because he realized in about 1918 that there was a center. And he called it the self. And it was an archetype. And at that point, he had withdrawn from the world, gave up his professorship um, in Zurich, and um and had pretty much stopped writing. And then from then on until, uh, let me just kind of jump forward to 1927-ish, uh, where Richard Wilhelm, the man who wrote the I Ching, or translated it, uh, that a lot of people are familiar with, sent him a book called The Secret of the Golden Flower. And it was an ancient Taoist alchemical text And he saw a mandala in there that made him realize that the mandala was the self and that alchemy was the through line because as a scientist, he he wanted to find out if there was, he knew there, if this was going to be accurate, that what most of us, many of us now think is the, the way the world works and the collective unconscious and many of these amazing discoveries that Jung did, it was his discovery of mandalas that was the beginning of the center of himself. And um, that was, um, and he stopped doing mandalas in 1927, 28, when that book was published. And that's when he really went in and collected these books in Europe about alchemy, which were in Latin and Greek and many other languages. 
So the mandala that Clay has and Clay's work is really uh, your centering device that uh, that Jung discovered is this archetype of wholeness that's uh, transpersonal and so deep. And so I, I wanted to tie the self and the mandalas in for your listeners, so I'm sure some are familiar with that part of your work. I so appreciate you saying that, Howard. You know, for years I, I was drawing this thing and it had four quadrants to it and right. and I it was just innate. Something was happening. Right. And I was using right. it in business for twenty years. Mm-hmm. And I would pit this together and and what I've since learned is the term quaternity. Mm-hmm. Right. I'd have the pieces and then I'd put all this stuff together trying to put the puzzle together. And once I put it all into context, right. I had this big sigh, like, Oh, there's the answer. Yeah. yeah. And that's what I, when somebody showed me the Joseph Campbell quote, right. You know, it's about taking and putting all the scattered aspects of one life, one's right. life in, in, in order with the universe. Right. Oh, that's the big sigh. That's what I've been doing. all sure. this time. Sure. And so now, oh, now I'm starting to put language to it. And then every right. time you and I talked, Howard, mm-hmm. aside from it costing me a fortune in great books, of which everyone <laughs> I've appreciated, you keep pointing me to new, <laughs> you know, you've put this bread tra- trail out in front of me is, is helping me really understand mm-hmm. more about the essence of what yeah. the power of a mandala is. And yeah. I still feel like I'm just scratching this. Yeah, part. well, I think we all are yeah. trying to figure out ourselves and what yeah. that means in this era yeah. it feels applicable because i it, it feels like that what we're that what we're experiencing now is a change is in consciousness i mean we're, we're understanding with 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 i know that what looks it appears to me as everything is outside of here but it all happens in here i mean the 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 light comes into my eyes and all that, and it translates mm-hmm. right. into a picture out there. Right. But it's all happening in here. Right. Well, as we begin to get into virtual reality and we begin to 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 marry the, marry what's going on inside the brain with with all the different kinds of inputs, it seems like that, that we're going to be, we're going to be shifting the consciousness and mm-hmm. and what's going to be what's going to be looking at in this metaverse. That that's the deeper hope. That's that it, along it, with that is going to be a shift out of binary thinking. Yeah, and, and that's to, where we're, that's where we're going. Yep. Yeah, and it, if I could say just one one other, I find interesting thing about alchemy, and you know, I think um, you know all of us, and I'm sure most of your listeners have learned to work on themselves in some mm-hmm. way to keep expanding the consciousness. And the alchemists essentially had four colors because colors were important to them, but they had four basic colors that can summarize a way to work on yourself. It was black, uh, white, red, and gold. And there were some other colors like blue and other colors were part of it, but their main contribution was black represented our shadow. And in our shadow, to admit our shadows, uh, which if in any relationship, it's easy if you ask the other uh, and they're honest with you, they'll tell you your shadow, whether you want to hear it or not. (laughs) And then you have to go through the whitening stage, which is the purification of the shadow. And then once you purify out the shadow, and I think this is what... um, uh, your comments made me want to share this, that you have to go through a reddening stage where you bring back in the energy that was entangled in the shadow to that archetype. And by living that in a binary, non-binary way, in a complementary way, you have a chance to do this deeper alchemy that You've discovered almost automatically, Clay, in your mandala work, gets you there. And you have a way to do it for all of us. And I I know you because I know how hard you work on yourselves, both of you. It is that 
holding that space of complementarity around all the opposites that want to reduce us and are not friendly to this other mindset. Um, and one of the beauties of what's going on technologically is that when you get immersed in some of the new technology, it just happens. You don't have a choice to, if you can experience it to get past it. It's whether afterwards you then retain it and birth it as a conscious part of your mindset so that the ego and the deeper self are working together in a complementary way. That's not an intellectual event. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's how I'm reading it. I mean, it, it's, it's almost a visceral experience mm -hmm. that eventually, for me, it, it becomes conscious and I can say, oh, that's what was happening. Right. Yes. Yeah. I can't think my way into that space. Yeah. No, one thing that's interesting about consciousness, as much as you want to have the intention, it's almost only after it happens that you become aware that you were con that you become <laughs> conscious of something before it disappears. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that, that, that's, I, I find it interesting to know, to, to, to imagine all the things that I'm going to be learning that I can keep myself open so when I do come upon them, I actually experience mm -hmm. them rather than walking past. Right on, right on. Yeah. You know, and that's really my prayer. Keep me right. open. Mm -hmm. Keep me open, mm -hmm. universe, to what lessons are here so that mm -hmm. I can both yeah. learn them and experience them mm -hmm. and then share them and share yeah. the grace. Yeah. Let me take just one piece of the alchemical process. There was this term that I've heard, I've heard, and I've actually embedded it up into my mandala right over here somewhere mm -hmm. called the philosopher's stone. Right. And for the life of me, I, I, I knew that it was something, but I couldn't figure out what that something really was until I began to tell you pointed me into the alchemical process. Right. But even now I have trouble so I said, well, what's the philosopher's stone? Can you? Well, I, I, I'll take a minor stab at it that it's the elixir. It's the part of all of us that are seeking health. And that was the main metaphor. One of the main metaphors for the alchemist was searching for the philosopher's stone, which oftentimes was imaged in the last... There's seven different stages in alchemy, but I'll just refer to the last one, uh, which is called the sacred marriage. Okay. And it's the sacred marriage oftentimes was imaged as the sun and the moon. And so I keep exploring that complementarity of the sun and the moon, taking the gender labels off and dealing with the energy and finding that is the way that I try to image and articulate the elixir, the philosopher's stone, the healing stone. But uh, they, were, they were after healings. They were trying to end something and discover something. And it was that piece that I, I've seen imaged as the sun and the moon and the complementarity. And in many of the alchemical pictures, because they were immersed in nature, they didn't have the magnitude of the subject, object, language so far away. And they were trying to figure something out about matter. Well, mm. We kind of you know, accepted matter as an object and tried to accumulate it rather than see it on the continual evolution that you pointed out. It really is, Dennis. It's energy oh. that isn't fixed unless the ego fixes it. Yes, it made into an object. I mean, so, and I find it fascinating when I when I when mm -hmm. I read the Financial Times and I uh, you see people with billions of dollars, and and I go, really. okay, well, what would be enough? I realize it's the, it, it must be playing a game. It must be playing the mm -hmm. game, you know, and that there's always the game mm -hmm. to win more. Right. But what mm -hmm. to what end? 
right. to to what when, when do we ask ourselves that question mm-hmm. to what end what are we doing here mm-hmm. on the planet what is my what is my my why am i here why well, that, that that's the that's what i have sort of summarized as the philosopher stone is this quantum energy of the wave and the particle yeah and trying to keep it alive and minimally make it into matter, attitudes, uh, emotions that get stuck. Mm-hmm. And okay. The shadow. Okay, so let me pick up on that. Yeah. You, you, when you said shadow, and you've taught me the term prima materia, mm-hmm. and in some way, does, does that equal? equate now that's that's what i think young discovered is that the prima materia that the alchemists were working with was their own shadow projected into matter and that the thing about the alchemist that is and the symbolism which is fascinating to me is that it, it occurred over hundreds if not thousands of years as an evolution of how we see matter and so now I believe we're in the quantum level of not make up realizing there's something invisible that's matter. It's not just visible. And it's seeing the visible and the invisible that uh, makes that complementarity rather than it getting one-sided. So, you know, it's really in our personal shadow and now our collective shadow that keeps the transformation from going in a way that just keeps getting acted out in projection and making the other the object that's the enemy. Yeah. Rather than admitting that part of ourselves. And that's what, you know, unconsciously the alchemists were doing was getting their ego out of their way. You know, they had to be fairly wealthy to afford all that equipment. They were hated by the church. Um, and um, so many of them were philosophers and doctors really looking for healings. And I think all of us, no matter who we are, at what's part of the continuum we are, we are looking for healings and having a longer, more vital for life. I guess they were, I, I guess at some point they were beginning to equate, I guess, that part of healing physically is the mental healing. Well, I'd say that's where Freud and Jung came in. Okay. And that's what they were able to do in uh, picking up this thing that's called the unconscious. Mm. Yeah. Is that that is, I call the unconscious the self, because, you know, and the ego uh, relationship to the unconscious is what, flows and works mm. when you have too much ego or too much unconscious you're in trouble and that's hard to find the, the right dance of that particular configuration wow the the a hard ego driving the unconscious there's a right. formula for disaster <laughs> right and oh it certainly versa. has been in my life yeah <laughs> and for all of us, yeah. Oh, not me. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Plays on the, you know, plays, plays far you down are, the road from us. You, you and I, Howard. You and I will, you right. and I will sit down together. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have a beer together, and right. then play can go. You can, mm-hmm. you can ascend on your own as you're. <laughs> yeah, right. Till the wax melts off my wings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Howard, I want to thank you so much for today because uh, I love I love the opportunity to to learn mm-hmm. more and to to discuss uh, what are what are the the because I love the idea of of the, that radio waves existed before the invention of the radio. You know, it wasn't, it's just we began to use them. And, and when we began to sensitize myself to the power of intuition, to be able to see, I mean, you know, right. that's where where uh, Einstein and so many of the uh, uh, fine men and so many, they, sure. they use their intuition on a, right. on, on, on a regular basis, yeah. that this is where the, this is part of what we're doing. And as we're building, 
building that right. muscle. Right. And and you're such a proponent and, and, and a practitioner in developing the, the intuition and using it that you have used it so much in your life. And it's one of the, the reasons why I'm so inspired every time I get around you and well, get you, to be able to do that because thank that's you. something I'm working mm-hmm. to develop and to practice more in mm-hmm. my life. Thank you. Feel honored to know both of you. Mm. Clay, thank you for this opportunity today to be on in mm-hmm. search of the new compassionate male. And Howard, thank you. Thank you again for this, uh, this chance wow. to have another journey and, and that may we continue these conversations as we learn, learn more. I want to, uh, I want to explore in, in the next time we talk, the, 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 the concept of the collapsing of, of the future as it collapses as we observe it. And so one of the reasons why it's so careful, I need to be careful to what I observe, because what I observe right. will actually be part of my reality. And so I want to talk about that more and okay. talk about it with you and, and, and with you, Clay. And yes. uh, anything closing, Clay, that you want to share? As always, I... <laughs> I come away with a bit more knowledge when Howard and I talk. And more questions than when I walked in. I I always have more questions on the other side of a conversation with Howard Tice than I have. And my uh, my Amazon book bill (laughs) continues to get a little bit bigger. (laughs) Jeff Jeff Bezos goes, oh, Howard's going to be on the podcast again. Yeah, really. yeah, more, more for my yachts. <laughs> I just love it when Howard's with us. It, it, it always Thank expands you. my thinking, and I come away going, yeah. "Oh boy, so much more to study, mm-hmm. and so much." Not just my thinking, too. It's my heart. Yeah, because because Howard, you're such you, you're such a, a deeply heartful man. Mm-hmm. And have, have brought in your love and your love mm-hmm. consciousness and that, 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 that has that from that my, the way I interpret mm-hmm. the word is, is so strong and, and your intellect, of course, mm-hmm. but, but the, the combination mm-hmm. of those that, that, that you bring to us is, uh, is extraordinary. Thank you. Thank you for this. Yeah, both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Clay. And thank you everyone who has, uh, been here for this podcast and we look forward to seeing you on future podcasts in search of the new compassionate male <laughs> well done howard nicely oh, well, held. You, you held that right there held it on like a pro uh, anyway uh, thank, thank you both thank you. Check out the latest episode of In Search of the New Compassionate Male on your favorite podcast station. 